19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You may be seated. Well, we have our Bibles open to the book of James this morning again. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. And in chapter 1, we have already spent time looking at the fact that trials and testings come into our lives. And I think it's important for us to, again, make note of who or to whom this was written. James, already prior to the text here today, and starting in verse 19, he for the third time, addresses the beloved brethren. The book of James is written to Christians. Seventeen times throughout the book of James, he addresses brethren, people who are committed and connected to each other, the local church, if you were. Now, trials and testings come into our lives. We know that don't we? Trials are not some haphazard fate that falls on the door of um, any given day, but it is trials are tests. They are tests not so much whether to see, like in school, whether we pass or fail, whether we get a good grade or a bad grade, Trials are given to us more for the purpose of refinement. And that's the illustration in the early part of the book of James in chapter 1. Trials are tests. Verse 3 tells us that trials produce steadfastness. Or patience is the word that the King James Version uses. Remember that the principle of trials and testing is that God is willing. God is willing to take us where we could not have gone in order to produce something in us that we could not produce on our own or something that we could not have achieved on our own. That is the purpose of trials, and it produces maturity and steadfastness in our lives. Trials, as I see it, are more from without, something that is outside of ourselves. Temptation, on the other hand, is something that comes from within us, according to verse 14 of James chapter 1. It comes from our own desires, things that are by nature, by our created, by creation, are within us. We're created to have desires of all kinds. And as we know, those desires can easily, easily be fraught with selfishness. And when we yield to those desires in an unhealthy or in um, a way that has poor boundaries connected with it in some way, um, it can yield to a lot of trouble. It leads us onto a journey that can very easily 
cause us to be completely out of our own control. We become dominated by the power of uh, whatever it is that's in our lives. And ultimately, James uses the illustration of the life cycle to describe this. He says that lust conceives within us. And it leads to, to actions or to birth and ultimately leads to death. Being born again, on the other hand, in verses 15 and, and following, uh, we remember seeing this in our last sermon, don't we? How that James uses that same illustration of the life cycle to describe the new birth in our lives. The seed of the Word of God is implanted in our lives, and it produces fruit, or specifically a first fruit is the word that's used to describe that. And that in order to live victorious lives, we need to have that seed, the Word of God, in our lives. It is so important for us to avoid temptation, to avoid testing that, or temptations that come from within. Need, our lives need to be dominated by the Word of God. Verses 19 to 27 are sort of interesting in um, a couple of ways. And one is that James chapter 1 verses 19 to 27 are sort of an introduction, as I see it, to the rest of the book. And when I look at the teaching of the rest of this chapter in connection with trials and testings, I find it rather remarkable and a bit interesting James, as we know, has a very strong connection to the idea that behavior, Christian disciplines, need to be a part of our lives. And in chapter 2, uh, toward the end of the chapter, he talks a lot about works in relation to faith. And I know that um, for many of us in our culture or subculture, we find ourselves a bit recoiling of that sometimes, and maybe a bit reactive I firmly believe that the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace alone. Jesus saved us. And it is not something, there is nothing, no thing that we can do whereby we can earn salvation. We can earn that standing. However, James and numerous other places in Scripture make it particularly clear that there are behavior patterns and there are righteous behavior patterns that we can habitually follow that cause our lives to be better. Not so much that it saves us, but it leads us on in the path of salvation that we already are on because of what God has done in our lives. I have a bit of a hard time uh, describing that, actually, and quite understanding that fully. But I believe it's true, and I believe that God wants us to have disciplines and habits into our lives, and I can easily find myself following that as I look at this, this portion of Scripture here in James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, how that things that we do, behaviors and disciplines and habits that we form in our lives, actually are a way of hindering Satan's temptations and hindering our desires to get out of control to the point where we can habitually follow Christ in ways that our flesh, left to itself, does not normally or naturally do. I've entitled this sermon, The Righteous Life. The Righteous Life. When I look at the teaching of this text, it seems to me that there is clearly a theme of Christian service. And perhaps that should be some sort of sub-point here. Christian service. That in order to live above Satan's lies, and in order to, to work through the lies that Satan brings to us, a person has to realize that 
my life or our life is not merely from myself, that my life is something much bigger than who I am individually. And, and uh, what I am and what comes out of my life is something much bigger than what comes from within, left to itself. You see, in all of us, there is this basic tendency to take care of ourselves, to pursue what we want, and to pursue what we desire, to pursue what feels good to us, and to dictate our schedules and to fill our schedules with things that are beneficial to me and to us. Basically, I'm describing selfishness. We have it in our lives. The elevation of oneself and the elevation of one's ideas. And James, I feel, is confronting that here in this portion of, in this text, in this chapter, by calling us to live beyond that, to live on a higher level, calling us to a righteous life, to build things into our lives whereby we habitually are looking outside of our own four walls. We're not only focused on what is good for me and what is good for us and my ideas. And that goes in direct parallel with the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. James, in many ways, follows the Sermon on the Mount. James, the brother of Jesus, I think connects and remembers to his brother Jesus' teaching while here on earth. And the Sermon on the Mount is closely paralleled in this, in this book, where the reader or the listener, the hearer, is called to a set of values that goes beyond earthly things, that goes beyond temporal things, where my values are shaped by something that supersedes going after earthly treasures. And I'm thinking especially of Matthew 6 at this point. The problem with earthly values and the pursuit, the earthly treasures that we so um, naturally want to include and stash into our lives and into our schedules is that they, will, that they are all in the process of some sort of physical decay, significant physical decay. They fade away. And Jesus says in Matthew 6 that there is, that, that is the ultimate in poor investing when I spend the majority of my life and the majority of my actions show that my paradigm or that my model in life is to take care of what is good for me, when my life shows that my commitment to doing what is good for me supersedes and is number one in my life, I'm setting myself up for temptation. I'm setting myself up for temptation and my evil desires to take over and for that life cycle or that life process to begin in, in my heart. And that cycle, James tells us, leads to death. On the other hand, we have the good gifts that come from our good Father that brings light, that brings continuity in verse 18 and following. And because of this now, he says, wherefore, in verse 19, and wherefore, in verse 21, because of these facts, because of these principles, because of the preceding verses, we are called to um, several things, as I see it, that are listed here, um, sort of in James' style. It is bullet points that uh, are not particularly um, described in a lot of length or a lot, of, uh, a lot of detail, but we're called to live a righteous life, and in order to live victoriously in our lives, we have, we've got to understand that life, that our lives is not about me. It's not about us. <clears throat> the passage here gets amazingly practical. Actually, more practical than I am maybe even used to getting myself. I find it notable 
that James goes directly to some of the most basic and mundane things in life. In our 21st century, we are often um, bent or inclined. We feel called to do exciting things or things that are anything uh, but normal or mundane. James, on the other hand, comes down to the mundane things in life, things that we don't normally think of as that exciting or that um, thrilling. But I think the point is that that is where most of life happens. That is where most of our life is transpired. Most of our lives are lived in the basic and mundane. And sure, we enjoy the high points of life. And we have dramatic moments in our lives, that's for sure. And there is, but that is not actually where most of our life is lived out. We live in the small moments. And it's those small moments that tend to define us much more thoroughly and more importantly than the big ones. And it's in those ordinary, mundane moments that our faith is defined. And how we live and how we choose, how we direct ourselves, how we behave and conduct our lives in those ways, in those moments, is really the defining moments in our lives. Most of our lives don't make particularly compelling reality shows. But it's in those ordinary moments that God is calling us here. The book of James calls us to live a righteous life in those mundane and ordinary moments in our lives. And we need to be reminded, I feel, which I feel is the point of this passage, one of the points of this passage is to do well, to do the next right thing in those times. <clears throat> here are some things that James lists as things that define a righteous life. Let's look at them. First of all, in verse 19, he says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. In verse 19, I think it is so interesting that he begins with this descriptor. That this quality, this characteristic, is something that needs to supersede, that comes first when he thinks of, of definitions of a righteous life. Heeding counsel. Heeding counsel from others. Listening well. The thing is, our, our ears listen to what our heart craves. We hear what our heart craves. And so when we are particularly fixated in our heart on a certain thing, we hear what feels right to that desire in our heart. Our ears listen to what our heart craves. And that's often comes into such important play on this subject of listening. Why do I struggle to be a good listener? Well, it's because I'm so full of zeal for what my heart is craving, for my own little kingdom. Listening, on the other hand, takes humility. Listening takes sacrifice. And in reminding us to be quick to listen, James is hitting on an aspect of our sinful nature, our egotistical, selfish desire is such that we desire to be heard by others. And we spend much more time defending ourselves or building our points of communication rather than to listen to and understand others. In Proverbs 18, verse 2, in the ESV, a fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in expressing his own opinions. In that verse, you could just as well substitute our sinful nature instead of a fool. Our sinful nature delights in expressing itself. And how many times have you been in an argument, if you were, with yourself? 
forming and formulating what you want to say to a person or to an individual, rather than hearing or understanding their point of view. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit of Christ helps us overcome our tendency in that moment where we can possibly think beyond ourselves, like the call is here, to think like we ought to think, to desire to understand the other person. And that's an action of the Holy Spirit. To listen is to love and to strengthen the connection with others. How does listening strengthen the connection with others? I have several things. Listening is actually a form of loving. Listening is a form of love. By listening, we put aside our agenda. We take a break from what we're doing. We take a diversion from what is building up in our life, and we place value on someone else. We give our attention to the other. Listening requires selflessness and humility. It is a form of love, and love, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, is the oil, or it is the basis for which everything else flows in our lives. Listening is a form of love. Secondly, listening shows that you care. When we listen, it shows that we want to understand what the other person is experiencing, is feeling, or is thinking. When someone close to you senses that you are not really listening to what he or she is saying, that person feels, normally feels, on a lower rung. We lift ourselves up by not listening to the other person. Not listening gives the message that he or she does not count, is not worth your time, or their idea that is expressing, or what they're feeling is not worth my time. Conversely, listening shows that we care, which in turn strengthens our relationships. <clears throat> Thirdly, listening shows that you respect the other person for their insights. Think again of Proverbs 18, verse 2, where it says that a fool, a fool, our selfish nature delights in expressing our opinions. Listening, on the other hand, shows that we respect the insights of other people. A wise person, conversely, or in opposition or opposite of Proverbs 18.2, a wise person challenges himself or herself to grow in knowledge and understanding. And that is done mostly, I suggest, by listening well by respecting others for their insight. Respect is shown through listening. And then in verse 19, he follows that up by saying that we should be slow to speak. Verbal restraint is one of the marks of a righteous life. And we're going to pick up on that just a little bit later. Uh, in verse 26, we have some of the same ideas. And it is so interesting to me that in the book of James, there are 54, at least 54 imperative commands. And when I say imperative commands, there are commands that are given where you are the subject. Where he goes down through and he gives commands. Well, over half of those, over half of those 54 have to do with how we speak. It is a very big deal. In the book of James, he challenges us over and over to use verbal restraint. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later on in, uh, when we get closer to verse 26. And then there is also anger, slow to speak, slow to wrath, controlled anger, or anger under control. In verse 20, listen to me. Uncontrolled anger is a story. Uncontrolled anger is a story. It's a story of me wanting what I want. And it's a story that basically says much more about me than it says about anything or anyone in my story. Anything about the persons or the situation that I'm angry with. Uncontrolled anger is sig significant, not only for what it is, but what it reveals Uncontrolled anger is a real indicator of what is going on in my life. 
And when a person flies off the handle, as we say, and when we see that flash of temper, it is only a symptom of what is actually underneath. And perhaps it's sort of like an iceberg. You only see a small portion of what is actually, the bigger is under the surface. Think about the things that you are typically angry at. Most of the time, we become angry at the things that violate the laws or the wishes of me. Selfishness. Things that violate the rules of my little kingdom. I become angry when I don't get my wishes. Parents, why is it that we become so impatient with our children? Well, sometimes it's because we look at our children as an object of a way to promote our causes. And when our children are not promoting those causes, it makes us feel threatened for whatever reason. When they don't promote our causes or our wishes or our ideals or our image, our frustration with our children can easily be directly connected with the idea that children are an obstacle or a way of us getting what we want. You see, anger often reveals the fact that we are deeply aligned with what is good for me, what is good for us and our little kingdom. We want our way and we're angry with things and people that are in our way or that appear to be in our way of us achieving what we want to achieve. We tend sometimes to speak of anger as a weakness of nature. Perhaps it's some sort of family trait that we see or a matter of one's personal temperament. And yet, in this text, just like in any other place in the Bible, uncontrolled anger is condemned as one of the most destructive elements of human nature. Look what he says in verse 20. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In the story of the prodigal son, for instance, the elder brother was living a life that looked probably from the outside looked just as normal as could be. He was living a life that seemed to have all the right ingredients. But when he was confronted by his father, the Bible says that he was angry and would not go in to the party of his younger brother's return. The Bible teaches us that one of the ways to overcome anger is to forgive. Forgive those who wrong us. Forgive those who have injured us. Forgive those who have inflicted pain in our lives. And it is so easy and frequent where we seem to think that what has been done is unforgivable. At least that's how we live our lives. We replay the tapes in our mind over and over and over again. And it just wears a deep groove in our mind and our way of thinking. One of the sayings, the old sayings that we've heard over and over is that of forgiving and forgetting. I suggest that there is a fairly big difference between forgetting and choosing not to remember. Forgiving, I believe, has little to do with the storage of an event that has taken place in our life. In our life. And when something has happened, transpired in our lives that causes us a lot of pain, the pain is a reminder that there is a better place. The pain is a reminder that there is a way to move toward healing. The pain is often a motivator for us to move to that area of healing. And to forget is some way, sometimes in some ways can be a diversion for healing to actually take place. I'm thinking especially of a story of, by Corey Ten Boom where she talks in vivid language, The Hiding Place, where she talks about in vivid language how she was caught in the, in the claws of the Nazi, Nazi regime. And she writes about her experiences in Ravensbrück, the concentration camp. And she also captures later in her story the indispensable ingredient of forgiveness when she writes about the time when she was called for where she was called to a meeting 
that had to do with, with um, Nazism, and she discovered, she made the incredible discovery that she was part of the program with one of her guards, a former guard after the war. She was called to forgive according to her own teaching, and there she was in the presence of one of her former guards. My friends, I believe with all my heart that the secret to change anger and to overcoming anger in our lives is the Christian grace of forgiveness, where we consciously come to the place where we say, I choose not to hold the offense against you. I choose not to retaliate. I choose not to seek, your, to, seek to make your life miserable because of what you have done to me. <clears throat> Another point that I see here in the text, a tenant of a righteous life is that there is a release from moral filth and addictions, trappings that take away the power of the word. Look at verse 21. Lay apart, he says, or separate yourselves from all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That's the King James Version. Uh, then in the NIV, it talks about getting rid of moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and that keeps us from accepting the Word of God and the work of the Word in our lives. You know, all of us are familiar with the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 21 and also in other places where the parable of the sower, um, we, we see the effect that the thorns and the snares are the things of this life, the trappings of this life have to do. It chokes out the word in our lives. And that's pretty much what he's saying there in Matthew 20, uh, verse 21. Verse 21. Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity and receive with meekness the engrafted word. When the word is engrafted, and I like that word, it has the idea of a fruit tree, the picture of grafting to bear a different kind of fruit than what it would normally under the circumstances by nature. When the word is engrafted into my heart, that is the process whereby we become rescued from the enemy. And that rescue comes through Jesus, the word. The next mark of a righteous life here is the, interpret the interpretation and the application of the Bible. And I, I should add, it is, talks about a proper interpretation, a proper application of the Bible. Look at verses 22 to 25, where it talks about being hearers and not... Well, talks about being doers and not merely hearers. And it refers in verse 22 to the deception that that process can bring into our lives. Where we merely hear what is said and we don't actually practice or we don't actually do what we know. It becomes a tremendous deception. <clears throat> We've talked about this in some of the other sermons that I've preached here in this series. And where we don't like what we see in the mirror. We look at the mirror, and we don't like the image that's there, and so we break the mirror thinking that it's the mirror's fault. The main purpose for having a mirror in the first place is to see reflections. And maybe specifically, we have mirrors in our homes to reflect our image to us. And the purpose for having the Scripture and reading and studying the Bible is to see ourselves. And James mentions several things here in these couple of verses, mistakes that we make when we read the Scripture. First of all, we make the mistake of only glancing at ourselves. See that? He says we behold ourselves and go our way and straightly forget, straightway forget. We only glance at ourselves. We don't study ourselves when we read the Scripture. When we're looking at the mirror of the Word, we don't see ourselves. Perhaps we turn the mirror so that it reflects on someone else. Or depending how we turn the mirror, we can see some situation or some 
body that we think is talking about. Instead of looking square at the mirror and seeing our own reflection, the mirror of the Word is designed to um, remind us, to remind me of, our need, of my need. We read the Bible because our, our conscience would bother us if we didn't, when actually our conscience should bother us that we read so carelessly. I'm inclined to read the Bible because my conscience would bother me if I didn't. But the challenge is for us to look in the mirror and instead of reading it carelessly, we need to make note. We need to look closely at the reflection. We need to see ourselves in the mirror, the way God sees us, the, the way the mirror reflects to us. Another mistake that's mentioned here in James is that we forget what we see. We go our way and it has no bearing, no impact on us. If we would take the time to really look at ourselves, I think we would often see things that are unforgettable. But it's our carelessness, it's our haphazard style of looking at the mirror of God's Word that sometimes causes us to not even see ourselves at all. When Isaiah saw God for what he really was, for what God really was, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. When Peter saw Jesus, he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Job saw Christ, and he confessed, saying, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. How often do I look in the mirror of the Word? I see the imperfection that the mirror shows me, but I do absolutely nothing about it. Nothing at all. Nothing changes in my life as a result of what the Word shows me. I see my reflection as no problem. I become callous to the imperfection that the mirror shows. I think of it as normal. I refuse to face the truth of my condition. And then there's also the mistake of failing to do what the Word tells us. Several times in this couple of verses, it talks about doing, continuing therein is the word that's used in verse 25. Looking into the perfect law of liberty and continuing therein, doing what we see. If we're not careful, we think, we stoop to thinking that hearing is the same as doing. It isn't. It is not. Perhaps we think that reading is the same as doing. It is not. It isn't the same. We may even think that talking is the same as doing. It isn't. It is not the same. If we are to use God's Word correctly and profitably, we are to gaze into it carefully and with serious intent study and apply what we see in verse 25. We need to examine ourselves in relation to God's Word. And that requires time and attention and dedication. And then also James shows us the blessing in actually doing the Word. We are to practice the Word. We're to continue in the Word. We are to be liberated by the Word. And when we do the Word and we continue in that, we become liberated. I think that's wonderful. Verse 25, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. It brings liberty. The law, the, the Word of God, the mirror of God's Word brings liberty. We get the blessing of freedom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, if you care to turn to that, you, you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, we have 
sort of the same idea here where the Word of God is referred to as a mirror. It says, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That same uh, concept or that same idea that James talks about. And verse 18, verse 18 continues, he says, But we all, with an open face, beholding as in a glass or a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are changed into that same image. The image that's reflected to us becomes the way or a way that we are changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. I like those verses. And I especially like that the, the word changed there in the King James Version in verse 18 is actually the word metamorphosis, a word that we're familiar with, especially the idea of the word picture would be that of a caterpillar and a cocoon turning into a butterfly. That change takes place. When we look at the law, at the Word of God, at the law of God, we allow the mirror to re reflect God's image to us, and we become like the image that we are following, just sort of like is true to the negative. When we look at all the negative um, events in our lives and we focus on that, we actually become like that. And 2 Corinthians uses that same word where that metamorphosis takes place in our life and the reflection of Jesus in the Bible transforms us into that same image where we're changed from glory to glory. I'd like to continue now in verse 26 where he talks about verbal restraint from verse 19 and also here again in verse 26. Half of the commands in the book of James, as I told you earlier, have to do with our speaking. It's the tongue that reveals our heart. A controlled tongue is a controlled body, according to chapter 3. You know, one of the fruit of the Spirit is temperance, self-control, to be religious, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, is the fruit of temperance in our lives. In these last two verses now, James brings into the picture the subject of religion. And the word religion is a word that perhaps, at least in some of our settings or some of our minds, has sort of become a real stumbling block. The word itself is not necessarily a bad word, but it, it is the, the, the descriptor that you place in front of the word religion or religious that actually identifies it. Religion is, if, is, well, to be religious, according to the definition, is to believe in a higher power. To be religious, according to the definition, means that you give something or someone supreme or absolute importance in your life. The teaching here in the text is that when we do not control our tongue, it is an indication, it is an indicator of who is in charge of your life. So when our tongues, when our speaking are out of control, when we're saying and doing things that don't line up with the word, we are actually indicating it, is a, it shows who is in control of our lives. It follows naturally that if you are not able to control your tongue, your claim to giving God supreme and absolute authority in your life is actually a joke. It is vain and worthless. The last thing that I want to look at here in this chapter, in this text, is in verse 27. He continues with this same idea of religion. And the word religious. Indication of who is in control of our lives. Our righteous life, James tells us, is... Or one of the ways that we can uh, develop a righteous life in our, in, in our walk with the Lord is to be com that of compassionate service to those in need. In verse 27, compassionate service to those in need. If you truly are under the control of God and your claim to God's higher power, I think there is clearly evidence that's going to follow. We realize that we have been rescued. We realize that we have a need. We realize that we are needy. We realize that we are not in control of our lives. 
and it causes us to reach out to others who are in the same situation. James lists at least two things that are sort of acid tests of pure religion. You see the word there, he talks about pure religion. And I think that's something that we have to keep in our minds when we uh, um, hear this word and it conjures up uh, wrong views or whatever. Um, Pure religion is the religion that we need to follow. James gives us at least two tests of the pure religion that God accepts. First of all, there is the test of spiritual compassion. Love in action, hands-on, sleeves rolled up, care for people, especially care for the vulnerable in our midst. You know, God visited especially the people of Israel, the old covenant people, in order to rescue them. They needed a savior. They needed a way out. They needed a way to walk. They needed guidance. They needed, they needed food. They needed everything, and God provided it for them. God led the way in order to rescue them. And God's people today, in that same way, are to visit, is the word that's used there. It has the idea of relieving a burden. It has the idea of carrying part of that burden, or carrying the burden, the word visit, in relation to spiritual compassion. Widows and orphans are among some of the most powerless group, especially in the ancient world, but in our world today, there is a powerlessness and a vulnerability that that is felt. And it's reasonable. It's reasonable to extend that comparison to our age and the location where we are to those around us in need. All kinds of need, even people who are not widowed or orphans, vulnerable in our midst. The vulnerable in our society include people who are homeless or who have no friends. They may also be people who are mentally ill or handicapped, the elderly, physically disabled, the spiritually struggling in our midst, the abandoned, the unemployed, the refugee, and so on. To be a doer of the work, to have pure religion involves caring for those that are vulnerable in our midst. Those in our networks, in our neighborhoods who are vulnerable. Pure religion says, I will give. Pure religion says, others first. Pure religion says, I will serve. Pure religion says, I accept the burden of others that others are carrying. Pure religion says, not I, but Christ. Pure religion knows no boundaries in this matter of serving. You know, if someone has to ask you to serve, are you a servant? If you need to be forced to serve or compelled to serve, you are not a servant. And then finally, here in the text we have the test of social corruption. The test of social corruption. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, he says, and he continues right on there, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In relation to the society around us, There's such a fine line to walk, isn't it? We are to be completely and compassionately involved with society. But we are not to allow that society to have an impact on our lives in the sense that we become controlled or become like them. That they have an impact on our holiness. James uses the word unspotted. It means unstained or unpolluted or uncorrupted. When the Bible speaks about the world, it is talking about the system that is under the control of Satan, the system that Jesus will one day destroy with the word of his mouth, the sword of his mouth. It is the system that always has its gaze horizontally. The world only looks around. It never looks vertically. It never looks to God. The gaze of the world is never upward. But Christians, 
pure religion, those who are undefiled before God and the Father, one of the ways is to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Christians are to diligently conduct their lives in a way that they would never be ashamed to meet the Lord, that we never take the Holy Spirit who lives in us into uncomfortable positions. In 2 Peter chapter 3, there's a couple of verses here that correspond with this, where he's talking about the day of the Lord and the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, elements shall melt with fervent heat. He says in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise or this promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, Seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. I close with a reading that I came across this week as I studied. Here it is. It is not what we eat, but what we digest that makes us strong. It's not what we gain, but what we save that makes us rich. It is not what we read, but what we remember that makes us learned or smart. And it's not what we profess, but what we possess that makes us Christians. Those are words that I want to embrace and learn more about and keep and remember. If you are able, I invite you to kneel for our closing prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for giving us your word. I pray that you would help us to be faithful in looking into your word and understanding how that it is the source of peace and liber liberation and freedom for us. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for times where we have reflected the mirror in such a way that we have not seen ourselves, but only we see, um, apply it to other people, or in some way uh, we don't see ourselves the way you see us. I ask, Father, that you would grant us your wisdom uh, moving forward in our lives, that we would be granted um, insight through your word, to live lives that are righteous, to live lives that are separated from the world around us, to live lives that are in touch with the needs and the vulnerable people in our lives. I pray that you would continue to lead us as a church in ways that we can impact those around us in our communities and in our networks, in our circle of friends who need Jesus, who need an encouraging word, who need prayer, who need deliverance from what they're dealing with. And I ask, Lord, that you would continue to lead us and direct us as we go. We pray through Christ. Amen.